Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On June 22, 2022, we talked with Joaquin Caceres, an assistant research scientist at University of Georgia. He received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry and a PhD in microbiology at the Catholic University and University of Chile. He did his postdoctoral research at the University of Georgia in the Paris lab. He currently uses reverse genetics to design more effective live attenuated vaccines against influenza virus. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so my name is uh, Joaquin Cáceres. I'm an assistant research scientist in the University of Georgia, which I literally started uh, this month. Before that, I did a postdoc here in the University of Georgia during uh, four years and a half. And I got my PhD back in my home country, which is Chile, in microbiology between 2013 and 2017. And before that, I did a bachelor's in science and I got my biochemistry degree in Chile as well. Um, So here in the lab, we are mostly focused on influenza. Uh, We study, well, one of the advantages of influenza that we can study the virus in different hosts. So we focus our research in swine influenza, avian influenza, and of course, some of the, the human influenza. We, besides that, the last couple of years since COVID, of course, uh, we incorporate some of SARS-CoV-2 research. So we have been working side by side with uh, those two things. But now, little by little, we're just uh, going back to uh, keep the focus just on influenza. And within influenza, we study different things. We go from pathogenesis, transmission um, studies, to something more related to development of vaccines. I have been very involved in what is testing different antivirals. Um, For that, we use a lot of uh, different animal models. We go from avian animal uh, models, such as whales, chickens, sometimes turkeys, uh, some mammalian animal models, mice, rodents, ferrets, and now we are working, for example, with pigs. Um, so we have a good variety of uh, animal models. And the other thing that we we also have a very strong expertise here in the lab is uh, reverse genetics. We like to uh, kind of create different type of viruses. Some, sometimes they are really Frankenstein-like viruses, but yeah, we, we rely a lot of uh, our reverse genetic skills to try to understand a little bit better how the virus work, how the virus transmit, and to eventually uh, develop uh, more efficient uh, vaccines, which are mostly focusing here in uh, trying to develop more uh, better uh, live attenuated vaccines. Okay, cool. And how did you first become interested in science and virology? So back in Chile, how did that happen for you? Well, when I was about to finish high school, to be honest, and I'm going to be 100%, I didn't know what to do. So I, I always liked biology and chemistry. So I said, well, 
I, I didn't go, I didn't want to go to med school or something related to that kind of thing. So, well, since I have skills to biology and chemistry, let's do a, a biology bachelor science, something like that. And then around my third year in my biochemistry studies, um, I got a really interesting talk, actually it was a lecture, by one of the biology professors in my university, which after that it became my uh, thesis advice. So I said, well, this seems to be nice. I, I Later after that, when you have to start doing your, your first investigation units, where you spend, I don't know, three months, six months, I emailed this person, uh, which, by the way, his name is Marcelo López Lastra. Uh, he said, yeah, sure, come. And one of the things that in that moment caught my attention is that all these different uh, skills, all the different procedures that different viruses were able to do, similar to what you have in a cell, in order to take over the the cell machinery and start producing just more viral particles instead of all the uh, genes associated to the cell. So I said, well, this is kind of cool. <laughs> and, but yeah, then after that, I did my thesis in my undergrad thesis in that case. And I studied um, hepatitis C uh, and was testing different types of antivirals that which they should be, the idea was to generate antivirals able to uh, impact the translation of the messenger RNA of this uh, virus. Uh, which for me, I mean, all I have since always, I have had a, like a, a special interest in antivirals. So that was more in vitro and fortunately more now, like here in, in Georgia, I was able to do something similar but more in, in, in vivo. Um, so yeah, I think that that was the main reason this kind of uh, different strategies that viruses have to take over an infected cell, uh, which in some cases are very particular. Right. And then can you describe a little bit, like, how did you find your PhD lab and then your postdoctoral labs? How did that happen? <laughs> well, I have to say that I did my undergrad and my PhD in the same lab. Uh, I was really ex uh, happy uh, when I finished my undergrad. But back in Chile, the PhD uh, works a little bit different. You, you apply to a specific PhD program, and if you are accepted, after that, you need to apply to basically the fellowship that are mainly provided by the government. So it's like a two-step thing. If you get into the PhD, it doesn't mean that you will get a fellowship. So it's, it's pretty stressful, actually. So uh, at that moment, I said, well, I want to stay here because it was a good environment. My, my mentor in that moment, even though he was very strict, you could see that there was a lot that you could learn from him. So unfortunately, I got into my, uh, my, my second option, to be honest, of the PhD program. Then I got my fellowship. And uh, with those two things, I was able to pursue my PhD, which I completed in four years and a half. Um, for the postdoc, I met my uh, postdoc advisor, Daniel Perez, in 2016, in an ASD conference, actually, my, my PhD mentor, Marcelo López Lastra, introduced uh, uh, him to me. Uh, he looks like a really nice person. Of, of course, since my, my uh, Dr. Perez is from Argentina, I'm from Chile, uh, there is a lot of talking at that moment that happened in Spanish. 
but he seemed like a nice person. In that moment, he told me that he was just moving to Georgia from Maryland. So I said, oh, okay, I'm going. But after that, we didn't speak anymore. And in 2000, one year after, when I started saying, because at the beginning, I said, well, I want to, I want to do a postdoc, but I want to do a postdoc in Chile. At that moment, I didn't, I was not considering moving because but it's a big decision, right? After a couple of things that happened in the middle, I said, well, I'm going to try, I'm going to see if I can find a postdoc position outside of my home country and I will see if I can do it. I asked my supervisor at the moment, I said, well, the easiest way to get a postdoc position is just send an email put your CV there, say, say that you are interested, okay. I, I took that approach. I got a few emails saying, no, I don't have money, I don't have space, I want a lot of people to be honest also in Norway, you know. And then uh, I remember the Dr. Perez, that's, uh, and at that point I knew that I wanted to work with influence because my PhD was mostly focused on retroviruses and antibodies. But so I wanted to switch to something different and I always like influenza for this variety of uh, hosts um, that you can have. I sent an email to him uh, and he replied to me basically saying, well, yeah, sure, let me, let me just confirm that I have the funds, et cetera. Um, after that was just a paperwork for different type of things. Um, after six months, probably I was here. So, I cannot say that was a painful experience, no. I, I think that I was lucky enough to have a, 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 a person like Dr. Perez that he was uh, willing to receive me and I will be always thankful of him because he's, he opened the uh, door for a huge opportunity for me. Right, right. And I guess um, uh, influenza has actually been in the news a lot lately with the avian influenza that's kind of sweeping through. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, virus and just sort of the, it sort of uh, also goes into, like you were saying, the multiple hosts that flu can infect. So can you talk yes. a little bit more generally about that? So the, um, this avian influenza outbreak that we have in the U.S. currently is an H5N1. And this, this lineage of viruses came from 1996. And after that, you have been seeing sporadically different outbreaks. Sometimes are H5N1, H5N2, H5N8. For example, the previous outbreak or the virus that circulated more like in the Middle East is an H5N8. Now, this year, this virus was able to came to the US. It's sort of went to a process of reassortment with some genes from the wildlife that is in the U.S. And so far, the consequences of this outbreak have, are even bigger than the last outbreak, which was, remember correctly, in 2016. Fortunately for us, still these uh, H5 viruses, although they are very uh, nasty for the poultry, uh, they, are, they haven't acquired what it seems to be needed to uh, transmit efficiently is humans. So that's good for us. The bad part of, the, of all this is that yes, for everything that is related to poultry, they are a very nasty and economical consequences are very big. I was reading recently that they're seeing that um, the virus is actually getting into some mammals. So like foxes and some other mammals are actually being infected. Is this um, to be expected or is this somewhat unexpected? I mean. It, it, it's known that they can infect uh, uh, mammalian species. 
unfortunately, the, the efficiency of that is not uh, high. So they, for example, they, they still cannot transmit from mammalian to mammalian. I see. From human to human. But for example, for this outbreak, there is already one case in humans, which is a, a person in contact with some poultry. And you see every once in a while, for example, especially in, the, in Asia, you see cases of avian influenza in humans. And usually it's people that work closely or they have backyard chickens or something like that. So the virus can, can infect mammalia. Fortunately for us, that process is still not uh, very efficient, especially what is basically the airborne transmission. Right, right. Um, and then um, I guess then, can you tell us then a little bit about what you're working on now? And then sort of like the big picture question that you're trying to address, and then maybe also some of the techniques that you're using to address that question. Uh, okay, so well, I work in a lot of different things, but I would say that my main focus is in here in the lab is try to develop a live attenuated vaccines. One of the problems that we have for influenza, probably everybody knows is that we have a vaccine which is an inactivated vaccine, which unfortunately is not very efficient. When you evaluate the vaccine efficacy of that vaccine year after year, usually you don't get something higher than 50%. And that has a variability depending on the, of course, the host and the, um, the subtype. For example, H3N2 vaccines, are, they have a lower efficacy than, for example, H1s or influenza B. So what we're trying to do here in the lab is try to develop a live attenuated vaccine that ideally could improve this because the only live attenuated vaccine that is currently approved for humans is a vaccine that was developed in a, based on a backbone that has 50 years old. And a, that vaccine, although it's a live attenuated vaccine, the efficacy that it has is not very high. So actually, the, the recent years, it has not been recommended because the efficacy that you see is not high. This is the flu mist? Exactly, the flu mist. So um, when you start looking more in detail, which ones could be the explanation of, the, of the, this low efficacy? One of the things that we believe, or I believe, so I, I, I don't want to blame anyone, is that this vaccine was developed on a backbone of a virus that was serial passage X, so it acquired mutations that gave to the virus a temperature sensitive penalty. What, I, what we believe is that it has so many mutations that at the end is over uh, attenuated. So it's able to provide a immune response, but usually it's not the best. So using reverse genetics, what we, are, what we are trying to do is develop different platforms and that can go from, we have a platform, for example, that is also based on temperature-sensitive mutation. But we have other platforms that are more related to re, uh, rearrangement in the genome of the influence. So we move things around a little bit, and that, as a consequence, has that uh, the virus is more attenuated. And this platform, we have been, in try, we have been applying this platform for uh, H1Ns, H3N2s. We have some uh, results with influenza B. And we are also exploring the uh, animal portion of all this. We have some uh, experiments and results in swine. And for example, just uh, last week, we finished an experiment with chicken. So this same platform applied to avian influenza, uh, we use it to evaluate how does it work in chickens. Okay. 
So, so far we have promising results. We have uh, used different, of course, since we are doing different type of holes, we need to use different type of animal models. So we go from again, mice, ferrets, uh, hamsters, swines and chickens. So, so far we have um, exciting results. We see that this works, that these uh, vaccines are safe. I mean, they don't cause disease in the host. They are immunogenic, they are able to provide a immune response and then they are protected. In some cases, actually, for example, this is some in vivo preliminary data. We see that, for example, if we compare one of these vaccines with rearrangement genomes versus the backbone of these flumies, uh, we have a better response with our vaccine, which more or less confirmed the theory that maybe the flumies backbone is over uh, attenuated. So, but yeah, we're still just working in preclinical models and there is, of course, a long way to go to, to determine 100% if this can work or not. Right. And when you say it's working better, what are sort of the assays that you do to actually determine that? So how are you looking at that sort of immune response or that protection? Well, you have to basically two different things. One is the... the presence of antibody that you can assess through a maglutination inhibition assay or just macroneutralization assays. And what we have seen so far is that with uh, the vaccine that we have produced here in the lab, those levels of antibodies are usually high in comparison with these other vaccines. And then for ex- when after we vaccinate, uh, I'm going to talk about mice now because that's more uh, related to it. When after we vaccinate them up, the mice, and then we challenge those with a little dose of a wild-type virus, we see that even though all the vaccines are able to protect, the best protection is acquired with this vaccine with rearrangement uh, genomes. So we still have to address what happened with the cellular immune response, and we have collected the samples, but hopefully in a couple of months, I should be able to tell you if we see any difference or not. Yeah. And when you're looking at the, the sort of the immune response, are you looking immune response sort of in serum and in blood? Or are you looking actually at the immune response more like in the nose or in the lungs? Both, actually. Okay. So the, the gold standard is usually the, the, what you collect from the blood, right? Right. But we also have been trying to understand a little bit better. And that's another section of what we do here is that what happened in the mucosal immune? Because especially for flu, yes, the, what, you, what you see in the sera can be informative, right? But actually the influenza replicates in the respiratory. So we have been uh, evaluating samples from, I mean, sera, nasal watch, which is basically the upper respiratory tract. And we also are looking uh, into what's happening the, uh, in the lungs. So for that, we, we collect bronchiolar labs and we also look the level of antibodies that are... Uh, generated in those three uh, different samples. We have all, uh, for to try to understand better how the immune response against influenza work, we have been also collaborating with some people in uh, California, Dr. Hugh Davis, and they have developed like a microarray antigen assay for influenza, which with one sample, you can see how is the production of different antibodies, again, multiple uh, strains of influenza, and multiple subtypes of influence. So that can give you an idea of how broad is the response that you're having. Right, right. Because I guess that's sort of 
one of the issues with influenza is that is not just can you get a get a good response against particular um, strains, but can you actually have a broader response so that you don't have to be necessarily chasing each strain as it arises? Exactly. So the concept of the uh, universal influenza vaccine is, is that it's uh, one vaccine that hopefully can protect against multiple different subtypes or multiple different uh, uh, variants of influenza. So that's why it's so important to understand how broad is the immune response that you are generating, which let, uh, with this type of uh, techniques, it's really easy. But if you don't have them, it becomes a problem because you cannot be doing challenge studies with different influenza subtypes in mice because it's, it's endless. And then I guess just to finish up, so um, what are you thinking about sort of for the future? Are you wanting to continue on in academics and start your own lab? Are you interested in um, uh, industry? What is sort of your thoughts for the future? I think that the short response is yes, but I would like to eventually become a uh, a principal investigator and have my own lab. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the easiest uh, pathway to run. But I have to say that although it's a very uh, sacrificing job, what we do in general, uh, I, I like it. I like to have uh, been day to day in the lab, discussing results. Um, so we'll see. Uh, um, one of the big problems is always that there is no a lot of openings for uh, uh, in academia, but I am confident that sooner or later something will come up. Um, but I'm not worried about that. To be honest, I'm very happy here in Georgia. The, my, my postdoc mentor, Dr. Pepe, was great with me. He helped me a lot in this transition that I have now to this uh, sort of non-tenure track position. So now I'm, I'm planning to start little by little, hopefully building my own uh, I see. And so are you going to be applying for grants then Is the, in this new position? Yes. This is sort of like a transition period? Yes. So one of the ideas in this new position is that hopefully try to acquire the, the experience and hopefully get some grants that will allow me to start my own independent career. And we, we go from there. I have the full support of Dr. Perez and the faculties around. So it's a really good environment to this uh, transition, which probably already know it's very difficult. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Great, well, thanks so much for talking with us today. And then are you um, gonna be presenting some of your work at ASV this year? Yes, so I'm going to be, uh, I will give a oral uh, talk about all these uh, vaccines that we have been doing with rearrangement genomes. So if you want to hear more about it, uh, I, at this point, I don't have any top of my head, but I think that I present the almost the last day to the ESB in one of the vaccine sessions. All right, great. Well, thanks so much. Nice talking to you, and we look forward to hearing about your research. Thank you so much. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.